Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. You can also have the, you can also find the plan on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, we are on day 309. 309, here we go. Uh, and if you have any questions along the way that you would like us to take time as much as we can to answer them, we would love to do so. I think today's episode, we're trying to catch up on the question backlog that we have. So I think there's three questions we're taking on today. Yeah, we're going for it. So that'll happen at the end of our podcast. But along the way, if you have questions, there's three three ways to get them to us. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Or you can direct message us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is the Grove CH. Make sure to put in the subject line or just as a heads up, it's a podcast question. That way it gets to us quicker. Uh, and we would love to take time to do that. And I do think we would be amiss without giving uh, our friend Eli Angulo a shout out for this episode, actually being able to be recorded on time. Oh, for sure. Uh, because if you don't know this, Evan is deathly, not deathly, but close to deathly being afraid of spiders, don't most like spiders. Uh, and there was a big old spider in our recording studio where we were recording and Evan tried to kill it, but he couldn't do it. And that's okay. It's it, Listen, it's, it's a fear. I get it. So he came in, actually rescued the spider for all you animal activists out there. Uh, and is l- delivering it into the wild to be free. Again. Yeah, he so- should not have rescued it. And in my defense, uh, Eli, who has the opposite of a fear of spiders, he's like, doesn't carry, thinks they're cool. Even he was like, oh, dang, that's really big. So it was. Yeah, but he, was did, not- he didn't say, oh, dang, that's really big. Like, not, oh, empathizing not, with yeah, you. No, he's he not said, afraid. Oh, yeah, that's a big spider. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was excited that it was big. It I'm definitely just saying, was a big I'm one I'm just for saying sure. it's not me saying this was, it's not a small spider that I'm projecting yep. to be a big one. This was a, this was a large uh, house spider. It was a big boy. Well, and I'll, and I'll be honest. I will be fully transparent and say, I did not help Evan at all, but try to extort him for a fantasy football player acquisition yeah, just a jerk. as well as sitting here laugh, <laughs> laughing to tears because, because it was fun to watch. So uh, Evan, I'm sorry. I want to go publicly and say, I'm sorry for making uh, it a joke and hey. not taking your fear more seriously. So all good. Well, <laughs> last week we left it off. It was a little bit, yeah, it was a downer. That's a great segue, bro. <laughs> we left it. We left it on a bit of a downer. Uh, true. This week, it's pretty much all uplifting until, at least in my readings, until we get to uh, a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. But other than that, it's all, it's all good. It's all happy stuff. Uh, I'm guessing Stevens in your readings this week. Correct. So, okay. Yeah. So there's a few. There's I a actually few. get the first two martyrs of the church. Oh, James dies this week too? Don't spoil oh, it. I'm like, poor James. Okay. Well, anyway, sorry. Well, Just hit, kidding. listeners, pretend you didn't hear that. So James <laughs> is James it. is totally fine. Uh, okay. So <laughs> let's get into the end of, uh, let's get into the end of the gospels here. So this is Mark chapter 15, Matthew chapter 27, Luke chapter 23, and John chapter 19. Uh, each of those are in the last two chapters of their respective gospels. Well, John's in the last three. So... Uh, this week, we begin by seeing what happens with Jesus' body. So last week, he dies on the cross. This week, his body has been taken down. So now let's see what's going on. Uh, we're introduced to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he was an extremely high up Pharisee. He even had a place on the Sanhedrin. So that's the governing council that is, is executing judgment over these things. And so we read that he is a secret disciple of Jesus. And so he wants to make sure that his body is buried with respect and according to Jewish rites. And so he goes and asks Pilate for the body and it is given to him. Uh, John shares that Nicodemus joins him in this. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both are high up Pharisees. I I don't remember if Nicodemus is on the Sanhedrin, but I believe he is as well. Um, But don't quote me on that, listeners. But either way, they're two very high up Pharisees, and they are making sure that Jesus' body is taken care of. It it is then placed in an unused tomb. Uh, I didn't read that it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, so I wasn't sure if that was... 
if that was like church tradition that we have, or if it was just not, but I guess it would have, I guess, I don't know. It's not like they just go to a random tomb. So you must've bought it anyway. Sorry. <laughs> this this just, one's empty. Let's put the body here. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud right now. Uh, and then Matthew gives us this interesting side bit as well. So this is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 20, starting in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. Pilate, remember, is the governor of Judea at the time. Uh, and they said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Uh, at least in that moment, they're right. It's not a fraud, but the, after Jesus rises from the dead, that is good that... He creates a lot more problems for the Pharisees and Sadducees after doing that. Aaron just hit his thumb on the table and appears to be, but he did. He didn't make a swear. So good job, Aaron. Way to go. <laughs> I'm okay. Uh, Pilate said to them, "You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can." So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Which, in fairness to them, I mean, how much extra does it cost to put like ten guards? You know, why are they putting just a few? But whatever. It's a know, good question. I, I'm not going to blame them. It's it's whatever. When you should ask God when we get to heaven. Yeah. Hey, why were the Pharisees and Sadducees, such idiots when they were guarding your tomb. Uh, so going back to the synoptics, so it's Mark, Matthew, and Luke. After observing the Sabbath, so remember, so Jesus dies on a Friday, Saturday is Sabbath, so no one does anything on Sabbath. And then Sunday, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of Joseph, Salome, uh, and I... It's it's unclear whether Joanna is a other character or if that is another name for Salome. So, but I, I'm kind of lumping her in as one character here. So there could be four, there could be three. Either way, they arrive at the tomb to anoint Jesus's body once more. However, when they arrive, the tomb is empty. Spoilers, listeners. I guess not spoilers because we're reading it right now. But you know, I think all of us, if you're a Christian, you know this is what goes down. Uh, we get this in Luke chapter 24, verses five through nine. It says, and they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Uh, so I love essentially what's happening here. Remember, it's these women who are going, they're trying to anoint the body of Jesus. They're giving him Jewish burial rites. And then they're told he's risen again and they don't get it. Right. And so, and, and this is the thing, I, again, I have a lot of sympathy for the disciples because this is an incredible miracle uh, for them. All hope had been lost. And now all of a sudden they're being told that Jesus is risen again. So they think someone stole his body is what's going on here. And so I love the John account of what happens next, because it, again, it hasn't clicked that Jesus is fully risen. So they go to Peter and John. Uh, and so Peter and John run as fast as they can to the tomb. And I love that in John's gospel, he he points out that John got there first, that I got there first. Basically, Winner. So he says it. So I just imagine, I mean, this was written after Peter died almost certainly. So maybe up in heaven, Peter's just like, why, like, why do you have to put that in there, man? We, you can't just say we arrived at the, t at the tomb, but whatever. Uh, Peter and also Peter's not there to defend himself anymore. So John's kind of a jerk. <laughs> He's kind of just letting him know. He's the younger brother. There you go. I win. Uh, so Peter and John also seem to think that Jesus his body has been stolen. And so they leave with all this happening. Mary is weeping outside of the tomb. And speaking of scenes that I love, this is one of my favorites. So it says, but Mary was weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but to go to but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. Uh, so Mary is the first person that Jesus chooses to appear to, which is really cool. So I, I love that they have that moment together. And I love that it's, you know, the, the 12 disciples and particularly Peter, James, and John in that group of inner three, they get to see a lot of the coolest stuff. And so I love that Jesus picks one of the lesser disciples, Mary Magdalene, and is is, is, is he reveals himself to her first. So really cool. Uh, while this happens, Luke gives us the road to Emmaus story. This is one of, if you're me, this is one of the most infamous stories in all of the Bible uh, because there's two disciples. One is named Cleopas. uh, The other one is not named. They're on the road to Emmaus. They're super bummed out because Jesus is dead and Jesus appears to them, but they don't know that it's Jesus yet. And so they're walking and eventually he just reveals himself. And then it says that he goes through all of the Old Testament from the prophet, sorry, from the from the lot of the prophets and explains how it all points to him, which is incredible. Yeah. And then Cleopas didn't write any of it. <laughs> so it's all we know is that Jesus revealed the full truth to them. And that was it. Kind of a little bit of a jerk move on Cleopas's part, if you ask me. But what, what are you going to do? So Jesus is starting to reveal himself to some of his disciples here. Uh, then we get into the next chapters. And this is, we're actually just going to wrap up pretty much all of the Gospels now. Uh, after this, Jesus reveals himself to even more of his disciples, all of the remaining 11, except for Thomas. Thomas isn't there. And so, which I feel like that sucks to... <laughs> Like Thomas the twin. Yeah. Uh, Elsa the doubter, doubting Thomas. But uh, Thomas is gone doing something else. He comes back. The other 10 uh, disciples are like, dude, you missed it. Jesus was here. And he's just like, come on. And so Thomas doubts. He's like, I won't believe it until I see his hands and his feet. And so Jesus reappears and he allows Thomas to touch his hands and his feet. And he tells, you know, Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And Jesus says, you have seen and believed, but blessed is the man who does not see and still believes. So, and that's, hey, that's us. So, yay. Us. Uh, so there you go. Jesus now appealed to all the, I was about to say all 12 of the disciples, but that's not true because Judas is dead. But he's appeared to the rest of them. Uh, John then gives us a passage that could have been the end of the book. And which is really interesting. So this is the next verse. And it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You really could have ended there. Yeah. But John gives us an epilogue. He gives us, and and I'm really glad he did because this is one of my absolute favorite chapters of the Bible is John chapter 21. So John tells us a story of seven of the disciples traveling back to the Sea of Galilee after this has happened. So these were Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and then two others that are not named. But we can guess that they are among the 12. Uh, We can imagine that they're feeling somewhat low. So Jesus is alive. But remember, they've all failed him. Everyone but John deserted Jesus at the cross. And so I I think sometimes we take for granted that when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, they're all like, oh my gosh, let's get moving. No, I I think it it was a moment of just relief of seeing their Lord alive, uh, our Lord alive, not just their Lord, but seeing Jesus alive. But then I think there was also a moment of, this is, to be clear, this is me reading into it. This is kind of my conjecture. Um, But I imagine they kind of thought that their part in the story was done. 
and that now Jesus was going to choose other people who didn't fail to move to move forward his mission. And so they kind of just go back to Galilee. Uh, Peter at one point says that he's going to go out fishing and they decide to go out all morning. They catch nothing. And then th- this is this is the part that's just one of my favorites. So this is John 21, starting in verse four. It says, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his uh, his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Uh, and so if all that sounds familiar, if you're thinking to yourself, I feel like I just read this a few weeks ago. You did. Um, that, that miracle is basically a shot for shot remake of the one of the first miracle that Jesus does to introduce himself to Peter. And I love that this is the way Jesus is choosing to do it, right? Because he's... It, it's in, in this moment, and we'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, well, we'll just keep talking about it. They all eat breakfast together. And then after they eat breakfast, Jesus and Peter speak. And Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers back three times, yes, I do. And it says his heart is grieved the third time because he was asked a third time. What Jesus is doing here is he's showing Peter, he's essentially giving Peter a fresh start. Yep. He's giving him redemption. And so he's calling him again. And he purposely recreates the same miracle that Peter, that he called Peter after the first time, right? So the first time they meet, Jesus tells him to put the net on the other side. He's like, what are you doing? Sure. And he does it. They get all these fish. Peter realizes that he's the Messiah and Jesus calls him into the ministry or calls him to be one of his disciples. And now the exact same thing's happening. Jesus is once again calling Peter to be one of his disciples. And I love that he has him repeat his love for him three times. Because remember last week, Peter, well, not last week, but if, I mean, I guess we don't know how long ago in the text, but last week in the episode, we talked about how Peter denied Jesus three times. So it's almost like every time that Every time that Jesus asks him to affirm his love and Peter does, it's like he's wiping away that denial. So really cool. And he tells him basically, here's what you're going to do. You're going in to be my disciple. You're going to go do a bunch of crazy work. And then you're also going to be let out to die one day. He's essentially telling him you're going to die for the faith. And Peter's a little bit bummed about, I'm bummed might be the wrong word, but he's, you know, he gets this knowledge and he looks over at John and he's like, what's going to happen with him? And Jesus is like, don't worry about it. <laughs> Which is kind of like, what's it to you? What it, happens to him? Exactly. That's pretty much exactly what he I said. I have to tell my kids all the time. Do just worry about yourself. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Jesus says, if if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And I love that this is getting put in there because, and this gives us a good, a really good clue of where John is at as he's writing this gospel, because he's. We can guess that John is really old at this point. All the other disciples are dead because John specifically records in this moment, a rumor arose that John was not going to die, that he was going to keep him alive until Jesus came back. And then John is quick to point out, that's not what Jesus said. This is what he said. He said, what is it to you? He didn't say, I'm going to keep him alive. He just said, what is it to you if that's what I want to do? And I feel like you don't write that unless you're old and people are starting to spread rumors that like, John's not going to die. He's like, he, John's immortal. He's just going to stay here till Jesus does. So John assures him that that's not the case. Uh, and then John finally ends his gospel. And this is by far of the four gospels. This is my favorite ending line. It's so good. Um, and so f- the first, this, the first line, this isn't the ending line. The first line is John finally revealing who's the disciple that Jesus loves. 
He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. So in case you were doubting, like, hey, who's the disciple that Jesus loves? John is revealing here. It's it's me, guys. I'm, I'm the disciple that Jesus Bingo. loves. Bingo. And then the last line is this. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that's how John ends it. So just basically the idea of- It's called a mic drop. And I, and I, I, again, I think this gives us a really good window <laughs> into what John was trying to do because mm-hmm. it, John is such a different gospel. It, it doesn't tackle a lot of the things. And again, this is my conjecture. This is kind of just me reading in between the lines of what's going on. I think John had read the other gospels and he wanted to share other stories. He wanted to get out a bunch more. Here's what Jesus did. And you see at the end, he's specifically saying, "I have, and I haven't even touched on all of it. I couldn't even begin to try and say everything that Jesus did. And then again, this is me reading into it. But here's a bunch more that you maybe you didn't read in the other gospels. So, well, I think you see that even in in our natural discourse when we can read the same passages and read the same thoughts, and you come at it from an angle and a perspective of man, here's recounting this, or here's like a a a perspective on it. But then there's some topics where it's like, yeah, but this is the other side of the conversation too. And even in the podcast, you and I have been able to do that. So I do think there is some of this like John is seeing. But I was like, let me tell my side. Let me tell you the things that I remember. Let me right. things that, tell you the things that God, that Jesus really meant and really did. And, and so that's, that's the beauty, I think, of, this, of the Gospels. But more so, John, as a separate Gospel from the Synoptic Gospels, I just think you see, and I, and I think we've said it already a couple of different times, like you see the intimacy and the personal relationship that John had with Christ. Um, and it is like, you see it bleeding out and maybe, maybe he wasn't Jesus's love, most loved disciple, but John was like, Jesus is by far my, my favorite guy. Like he's, mm-hmm. so you see this really deep relationship. And so, um, it makes total sense that you would see him right from a different perspective, all the while in alignment to some things, but, um, it's definitely something that I think you can see and we can understand in, in modern times too, because you see that in different commentary, different conversations, things like that. So yep. No, it's sure. really fun. It's yeah, and and thank God that John did write his own gospel Absolutely. because it's it's so great to be able to have these different perspectives that we can see Jesus through. Uh, well, fine. We're going to read the ending of Luke's gospel. The synoptics are all fairly similar in how mm-hmm. they end, so I, I like Luke's the most. So we're just going to read that one. Uh, but this is Luke chapter twenty-four, starting in verse forty-four, and this is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and of the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so I think this is, just to pause really quick, this is also a really important note because what we see is in the epistles that are going to follow, and by the the epistles, I mean, that's all of the books from Romans to Jude. So those are the letters that we get from the apostles. They're going to apply the Old Testament in ways that seem really weird to us when we're reading. And I would never do on my own, right? <laughs> um, and so it's important that we get this verse where it's Jesus saying, or the Luke is saying that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So they're understanding, here's how Jesus is being pointed to in the Old Testament. Uh, and then continuing on in verse 46, and he said to them, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and on the third day rise from the dead, and that the repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
And he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So that's how Luke ends there. And that's it for the Gospels. That's the crazy thing. It's that like, feels weird. We're done. This is like the longest. I love it. Because like, normally with the Bible reading plan, we're kind of in and out of the Gospels. But we just spent like, this is week six or seven. This is like, we've been in the Gospels for a long time. So not nearly as long as, <laughs> as you could. <laughs> as you could, true. for sure. But we're going to continue on here with the book of Acts. And so this is, um, it's a great book. We get to see the birth of the church. This is what's happening after all of the, after Jesus's ascension. Uh, So first up, remember that this is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote the gospel of Luke. And then he also wrote this book with the full name of which is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And then he reminds us, similar to Luke in the book of Luke, uh, he reminds us of why he wrote it at the very start, as well as showing us the last moments with Jesus and his disciples. So we kind of get a more in-depth look at what the ascension looked like. At the end of the gospel of Luke, it's just kind of, and then he ascended up to heaven and they returned to Jerusalem. So we get to zoom in, see what that actually looked like a little bit more. And we also get, to, again, this idea of the character of Theophilus. I shouldn't say character. I mean, he's a real guy. But uh, Theophilus is probably the, pers- the person who is financially supporting Luke while he's doing this mission. And so both books are dedicated to him. So we open up with this in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after having... And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I, lo- I also love that the disciples still don't fully get it at this point. Like they're still waiting for like, hey, you're going to overthrow the Romans? Like, he's like, no. Is it time? Is it time? Uh, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them, took him out of their sight. So that's a more in-depth look at the ascension that we just read about at the end of the book of Luke. I love that after Jesus' ascension, a couple of angels appear and just tell the disciples like, hey, quit looking up at the sky like idiots. Go do what he told you to do. Because you can just imagine like, and in fairness to them, you know, you see Jesus just rise up into the clouds. I, I would also be staring slack-jawed up at the sky being like, whoa, what just what happened? Just happened? So yeah. the, the angels are like, hey, come on. Time to get to work. And so the disciples go into Jerusalem. Uh, The first order of business appears to be choosing someone to replace Judas as a member of the inner circle of 12 disciples. So, and again, we've said this a bunch of times. Remember, the 12 disciples are not the only disciples. They are a special group that Jesus has chosen uh, pretty obviously to me to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, right? I think that's why he's going with that number. And because of the symbolism there, it seems that they – I shouldn't say because – uh, me reading into it, it seems that because of the symbolism there, they feel like it's important to have 12 disciples again, like when they launch into this. So Peter declares that they must choose someone new and that it must be someone who has been with them for the whole of Jesus's ministry. So again, 
these other disciples, they're, it's, it's kind of sucks for them because they don't get their names in the Bible very often, but they were with them. A lot, a lot of these disciples were with them the entire time. So all, during all these miracles of Jesus, during all these moments where we're hearing from the 12 disciples, there's also another group that's traveling alongside of them. Uh, so two men are put forth. There's Joseph, also called Bersabbas and Justice. So he's got a cool, couple of cool nicknames. And Matthias, who apparently lacked any nicknames. Uh, they cast lots after praying, and the lots fell on Matthias, proving that you don't need sweet nicknames to be chosen by God. Um, and, you know, Joseph slash Barsabbas slash Justice is probably bummed, but at least he got his name in the Bible. You know, even if it's just for a little bit, he's for all of eternity. He's, he's in there. And his sweet nicknames as well. But Matthias is the one who's chosen. He is the 12th disciple. Um, we don't know a ton about Matthias. Like afterwards, we don't really hear from him, but we can assume that he does a better job than Judas. So good job. Good job, Matthias. Uh, after this, we are told that it is time for the feast, of, the feast, for the feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover. So that gives us an idea of if Jesus dies the day after Passover. So that gives us an idea of how long it's been since the death and resurrection of Christ. So about 50 days since all of that. And then this happens. This is probably one of the most famous verses in Acts or one of the most famous passages. So this is Acts chapter two, starting in verse two or starting in verse one, sorry. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Now, sorry, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are these not are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us? in his own native language. And so we get mighty rushing wind. This is clearly the, the, the power that Jesus is talking about. The Holy Spirit is coming and filling all of them. And they begin to speak in languages that they've never learned before. And as all of the people who have their own, because you, you can imagine at this point, right? They're probably speaking Aramaic as their kind of regional language. Greek would have, Greek and Latin would have been kind of the lingua franca's Greek much more so at this point in history. Uh, and so that's probably the way everyone's communicating with each other. But now all of a sudden they're hearing the gospel presented in their native language, which is a really, which is a really cool moment. Uh, some people in the crowd begin to say that they must all be drunk. So Peter gets up and he delivers the first sermon that we hear from any of the disciples after they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter declares that what everyone is seeing is what was prophesied by Joel. So he specifically quotes the end of Joel chapter two, speaking about how in the final days, in the, in the day of the Lord, that Yahweh will pour out his spirit on all flesh and that they shall prophesy, dream dreams and see visions. And not just men, but women as well. This is going into all people. Uh, Jesus had ushered in the new covenant and the Holy Spirit was going to make it obvious that that's what happened. So really cool moment that we see here. Uh, Peter then shares uh, with the crowd the testimony of who Jesus is, and he tells them that they crucified him, and that David spoke to him in the Psalms. Uh, spoke, sorry, spoke of him in the Psalms. However, Peter points out an important difference between David and Jesus. So this is Acts chapter two, starting in verse twenty-nine. It says, "Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn." 
had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said, Uh, And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off, hey, that's us, uh, everyone whom the Lord Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter gives this message and 3,000 people come to faith. So that's a, you know what? That's a, that's better than any message I've ever done. Show <laughs> so off. That's a good, that's a good That's all you got, call. Peter. Oh man. Uh, so that happens. And then we see the early church. It's the, the next few sections kind of just read as a montage. Like we just see the early church get started. Uh, they're selling their possessions they uh, to take care of each other. They're living selflessly with love. They kind of live in a commune essentially where they're just kind of pooling their resources, where people have need. They're selling stuff to make sure that's all taken care of. The, the people are living with incredible uh, generosity, especially with their finances. In chapter three, we see Peter and John encounter a lame man. This is a man who can't walk. Uh, when he asks them for alms, we get this famous line where uh, Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. I think this is pretty clearly showing that now God has empowered the disciples to do the types of miracles that Jesus was doing. And so pretty cool moment there. The man, obviously the man gets up and walks, so he's healed. And Peter continues to preach the gospel. And this gets the attention of the Jewish leaders, especially the Sadducees, uh, who are like, hey, there's no resurrection. So that Jesus guy, what you saw happen didn't happen. That's basically the Sadducees point. Uh, so Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin and are and demand they are demanded to give an explanation. Uh, We are then told that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he boldly presents the gospel to them. And the Sadducees are amazed that these two unlearned men are able to speak in such a way. So they essentially, you know, because they're all... This, the Sanhedrin would have been the most highly educated Jews of the of the time. Like yeah. they're, they're incredibly educated. And so they're seeing these backwater fishermen from up north in the Sea of Galilee and like, how on earth are they speaking this way? So they're impressed with what they're seeing. Uh, so we get this in verse 18. So they called them and charged them to not speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened him, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So yeah, essentially like, hey, shut up about this Jesus guy. And I love the answer of like, hey, if you, whether you think it's better to obey you or God, I guess you can make up your mind, but I'm not going to listen to you. So good for you, Peter. Good for the boldness of the disciples there. Uh, and then we see the church continue to grow. Uh, the believers pray for boldness and continue to share everything amongst themselves. Uh, in chapter five, we meet two of these members who are sharing everything amongst themselves. That's Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, man. 
basically they they so everyone's dummies. Selling, yeah, so every everyone's selling things, and they're essentially giving the money to the church to be distributed to those who have need. And so Ananias and Sapphira are like, hey, let's sell you know a portion of our land, and we'll give a portion to it to the church. Well, no, let's but, sell the let's sell our land that's and true. give a portion of the proceeds to the church. Yeah, but we'll say that we gave the whole thing to the yep. church. And so essentially, they do it. They lie, and so Ananias is confronted by Peter, and he's like, "Why'd you lie?" And the Holy Spirit just kills him on the spot. And then Sapphira comes up later and he asks her to come forward with the truth and she lies and the Holy Spirit kills her on the spot as well. And they're taken outside and buried. And so, uh, yeah, it's basically it's don't tempt the Holy Spirit. Also, I'd imagine that was a big downer for the church who's watching this happen. And like, but it's also communicating the seriousness of like, hey, yeah. we're, we're in this. This is the this is the big leagues now. So there you go. That's the story. Of, <laughs> That's exactly what the Holy Spirit was trying to This is the big leagues. We're at the show now. Exactly. No more of that minor league stuff Ex- attitude. Exactly. Uh, after this, we go back to the fun stuff, at least until we get to the <laughs> martyrs of, G- of Aaron's readings. Uh, the church continues to grow and grow. The Sadducees arrest the disciples. But that same night, an angel comes and lets them out. And what do they do? They go right back to preaching. <laughs> like literally that night, they just go to the temple and they start telling people about the gospel. Uh, they will not be silenced is basically the the move that's happening right now. They are then called before the council and we get this awesome scene. Uh, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So they're going I right like back. I just heard that. Yep. They're going right back to that uh, good old line. Uh, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Big jerk. God, yeah, come on. God exalted him at his right hand as uh, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnessing to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do about these men. For before these days, Thedius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this is a for if this plan, sorry, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then in the na- then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Um I, Gamaliel, I, I'm assuming he's a Christian. I'm assuming that. Did you I'm, say Galileo? Gamaliel? Just Gam- kidding. Yeah, I'm just okay. kidding. Galileo's from Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh. It was a funny thing, but never mind. Well, he's a scientist. Some too. of my listenership got it. Galileo. Um, Gamaliel, he, I, I, I'm assuming we're going to see him in heaven one day. Because I feel like you can't throw, th- throw this down and then not be convinced after what's happening. But he brings up a great point. He's like, hey, we've seen messiahs before and they've all been killed. And once they're killed his followers usually all disperse. These guys aren't dispersing. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. something is different right now. And so kudos to Gamaliel for actually being able to see like, this is different because that's what we see, right? At at first, when Jesus dies, what do the disciples do? They go into hiding. And even in John chapter 21, what are they doing? They're dispersing. They're just going to go back to their normal lives. Like clearly 
something has happened yeah. that is making them not do this. And so, like I said, I feel like after Gamaliel sees the church continue to grow and all these different things, I feel like he he has to be a Christian. I shouldn't say has to, but I'll be very disappointed. No, he has to be. I'll be very disappointed if we don't see Gamaliel in heaven one day. So there you go. Well, that's, that for, that's it for my week's readings. We're going to continue on in Acts with Aaron here in a sec. But before we do, uh, we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review, you know, it just helps get the podcast out there to more people, continue to grow this community of everybody reading the Bible together, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's where the review really goes a long way to help us out. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air, just like we're doing for... Kind dot humor. Although there was a disclaimer that they didn't get to choose their handle so that and they don't know how to change it. So I mean, nothing wrong with being kind and having humor. And it's a female shruggy emoji, so I'm assuming it's a her. Uh, but... I appreciate the transparency, but here's, I, I just, I mean, this podcast, this review is really cool to read. Uh, it says this, thank you from the absolute bottom of my heart. I've struggled with, under, to, with understanding the Bible and figuring out how to interpret it in a way that I both understand and can see how it is applicable in my daily life. The Old Testament has always been particularly difficult for me and always seemed to leave me with more questions than answers. This podcast has completely renewed my faith, almost like being dipped back into baptismal waters. It has not only made the Bible more of a resource for my, me and my faith, but it has also taught me more of what it means to be a Christian. I'm now excited. And this is, I think, the thing that was the most uh, most encouraging and exciting to read. She, she said that I'm now more excited to read the Bible the way I used to get excited about novels. I truly can't thank you enough for this. And may God continue to bless you on this journey. Uh, so I just thought that was really cool. because yeah, that was awesome. I remember my, my journey, like I've read the Bible a lot, but there was a season where I, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with it. And I'm, I'm now in a season of life where like, I really look forward to reading, uh, and my devotional times in the mornings. Um, and so I, I just appreciate that. I'm so excited to hear that there's a new love and a new, uh, fervor for reading God's word. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for being on the journey with us. We're just trying to love Jesus better and, and share what we're learning about the Bible. So, mm-hmm. um, as Evan said, we are in the book of Acts, and I do think you're going to see the podcast pick up some some speed as far as the length of a podcast go, uh, because we're not slogging through multiple different things, uh, and we're in a narrative portion of of the New Testament in the in the early church. Uh, so I, I'm excited to be in a new season with that. Um, but I, I pick up in Acts chapter six because Evan finished Acts chapter five, so we're continuing through the book of Acts this week, uh, chapter by chapter, up until uh, we kind of leave on a cliffhanger. Uh, and on the end of Saturday for the podcast, at least that's where we're in. But Acts chapter six, we're introduced, uh, what I call the first congregational conflict that happened in the early church. In essence, uh, it's where Greek speaking Jews believe their widows were being overlooked by the Hebrew speaking Jews in the distribution, which was mentioned at the end of chapter four. So there's a little bit of conflict arising and they're co- kind of complaining like, hey, they're not taking care of our widows. This isn't fair. It's not cool. Uh, and this, there's a couple of things here. It actually could have been happening, uh, that there was neglect in the church distribution process, or it could have just been a gap in the leadership of the disciples with the explosive growth of the early church. Um, so whatever the reason that there's this gap in this oversight, um, missed group of widows, the disciples come to a point of wisdom where I think they're drawn back on some of the things they've learned, uh, from Jesus, but also Moses himself, when he was doing too much, they realize they can't keep doing everything they're doing and keep the most important things uh, as a priority, which for them was studying the word in prayer because they're launching and building the church. Um, so then they d- discuss amongst the, the the disciples, all of the followers, not just the 11, all of the followers of Jesus and say, hey, choose from among yourselves 
individuals to oversee the distribution. So seven are chosen, uh, and the requirement was that they would be men of good reputation, full of spirit and wisdom. So there are seven that are chosen. The names of those seven are Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, and Pumbaa. No, I'm just kidding. Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas are appointed and prayed for. Uh, And that's the individual seven who are going to oversee the distribution of goods and resources. Um, Again, going back to Acts chapter four, there is this community uh, support happening within, within the early church. Uh, in chapter six, we also then get this encounter and this interaction where uh, I'm just going to say it this way, like the seven who are chosen to be distributed, oversee the distribution of goods and resources. It doesn't last long, unfortunately. Um, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the early church. Uh, and we get this in uh, Acts chapter six, verses eight through 15. It says, now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the freedom, the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenes and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him before the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And you get this incredible moment where uh, obviously there's not just conflict within within the church, which is true of any church today, but there's also opposition to the way, the the followers of Jesus, which again is not uh, it's it's also true of today. Uh, but it was interesting to see Stephen, who was elected to be an overseer of distribu- distribution, uh, was also still doing incredible things and performing many signs by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but there was a false accusation that the religious leaders didn't really care whether they were true or not. They just wanted to find a reason to stop and prevent. Because all throughout the Gospels, we saw that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were jealous of the early church and uh, are followers of Christ, and then also jealous of the church today. Uh, and so we get this encounter, we get this moment where, G- where Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. And then in chapter seven, we get his, his message. He then stands before the Sanhedrin and he preaches. Um, and he goes all the way back throughout Israelite history, Hebrew history. And he talks through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph, through Egypt, through Moses. He is just literally... And he's taking some of what Jesus has already shown when he was, after he was resurrected, where he taught them about the law and the prophets, about everything pointed to him. He's drawn the same conversation and bringing the the same Israelite leaders through this conversation. Um, And we get this moment, which this was kind of one of those moments where I highlighted in my own Bible reading, because I was like, man, I'd never, I I just bypassed this. I just skipped over it. And I thought it was pretty significant, but it's in Acts chapter 35 through 36. This is part of Stephen's speech, his preaching, his message, if you will, where in essence, he talks about Moses being a rejected savior. Uh, But it says this in verse 35 and 36 says, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you ruler and a judge, this one God, this one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led him out, performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. And it sounds like such a side note, but I was, I was kind of reminded of I mean, we've said in, in different episodes of the podcast, like Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Melchizedek. Jesus is the better Aaron. Like whatever the case is, like Jesus is the 
uh, uh, the better version. And so even in this conversation, like Stephen is drawing them from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, drawing them into the Moses and Moses conversation and drawing uh, connections and allusions to the fact that Moses and what Moses experienced by his own people is the very same thing that Jesus experienced before he was rejected and killed by his own people. Uh, and so I thought that parallel was really intriguing and really fun to see. Uh, chapter seven continues and again says Moses is this like rejected savior figure. Um, he continues preaching and talks about Israel's rebellion against God and then draws it forward into the message of, of God's real tabernacle, which is not a building that man has made, but it's a, it's a building that God has created, which is a creation in our, our bodies. And then he makes this accusation, uh, which is kind of the final straw. So he's, he's presenting a gospel that is drawing the Sanhedrin along the journey of how Christ is the fulfillment of everything the law and the prophets have said, which is where the Sanhedrin pitches their tent. It, 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 they plant their flag. And he's drawing them to this conclusion where Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We know that because Jesus said that. Stephen is aware and illuminated to the truth. He's empowered by the spirit to do incredible signs and wonders. And he's standing before Sanhedrin and makes this plea as well. And then we get this incredible, bold, audacious rebuke of Stephen to the Sanhedrin. He says this in verse verse 51 of chapter 7. And I'm going to read all the way to 8 chapter 1. It says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, which is a point-blank attack based upon Old Testament prophets and based upon the circumcision that they identify themselves that separates them apart as God's people. So he's challenging their very understanding of God's election as, the, as his people. It says, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? Throwback to the prophets we've read through, all of the things that they've had to navigate. They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, who betray whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law under the direction of the angels, yet have and have yet not kept it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him, which is a pretty which is a pretty potent moment. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of the Lord, glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covering their ears and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after this saying, after saying this, he died. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So this ends in a, in a very abrupt fashion, the, the, centri, centrical, the centric reality of the church in Jerusalem. On this day after Stephen was killed, as martyred for the faith in Christ, for the truth, and, and, and saying very boldly and calling out the Sanhedrin very boldly for their rejection and rebellion, uh, for their arrogance and pride, he faced death because of that, because they could not, re- they were not receive and open to receiving the truth and the grace of God. And this began and ushered in a new chapter in the early church's history, very short history. And we're introduced to Saul. Many of us know the story of Saul. If we've been around church for a while, we've probably have heard of the name Saul or Paul. 
and we're very familiar with him. And we're going to actually hear read more about him in the, in this week as a, as we jump into the reading. Uh, but Saul is is shown as this y- uh, young authority uh, that is is rising in the ranks of the Pharisees, is rising in the ranks of the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. And so he, by putting cloaks at the feet of Saul, it shows that he is the one that's standing in that audience that has authority, that everyone's submitting to him. And it says that he approved of this, uh, which is which is significant because it's what allowed the continue uh, movement forward of stoning Stephen. And in the midst of his stoning, we had this incredible moment where Stephen is caught up by seeing heaven opened up, seeing God and Jesus at the right hand of God. And in that moment, he because of the, uh, the the fulfillment and the hope and the peace that he has in Christ, he's able to say, receive my spirit, I'm yours. And he also follows what Jesus did on the cross where he said, don't or forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, much in the same way, cried out and begged for their grace or for their forgiveness and repentance and salvation as well. Uh, and so it's this incredible moment in in the early church history where we see the first martyr being being killed for the faith in Christ. And we see in contrast, the first real antagonist that is going to launch out a full assault on the church and the and the person of Saul. Uh, in chapter eight, as we move forward, we're not only introduced to Saul, but we're also introduced to the launch of the persecution against the early church. Where remember, as we just read, that it says everybody but the apostles was scattered. Uh, they no longer stayed in Jerusalem. They actually moved beyond the city of Jerusalem. They were kind of ran away from the city limits. Uh, and kind of planted all throughout the modern day world at that point. Um, and and then we get this shift in chapter eight of to uh, this man named Philip. Do you remember him? He was one of the seven who was overseen, who was elected to oversee the distribution. Well, now there's no longer a need for distribution because the church is scattered at this point. So he's on the road preaching. Uh, he heads first to Samaria where we, it, we, we get a very high level view of all the miracles that were happening. He He's doing incredible things by the power of God. People being delivered, they're being healed uh, to the point where it says, and I love this 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 phrase. It says there was great joy in the city because of what was happening. So we have that. Then we're introduced to this man named Simon the sorcerer, uh, and it says this in verses nine through thirteen of chapter eight. It says a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people, who while claiming to be somebody great, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, and they said this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. And things are looking up for Simon. In this moment, in chapter 8, we see he hears the gospel, he responds to the gospel, he gets baptized according to the gospel. And things were happening in Samaria. So Peter and John were called to come down from Jerusalem. They do. They find the believers in Samaria. They pray for the believers in Samaria. It says they receive the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is an incredible moment uh, in, in the early church, again, to see the Holy Spirit show up in full power. Um, and then it says that we uh, the way that the, the, the phrasing in the comments or the, the application note in my Bible says that we see Simon's true heart exposed. Simon the sorcerer, he then goes to Peter and John and offers to pay money to receive this gift, the ability to lay hands on someone and see them empowered by the spirit. And he says, how much would it cost? I'll give you money. And he earns a very firm rebuke from Peter. And because the reason why he wanted to to buy this gift 
to continue to build his own fame and accolade. And in turn, Peter offers the massive firm rebuke. And then he's told he has no part in this. You no longer have a part in this, meaning that because his heart is not submitted to, to God fully, he wasn't truly a Christian, which is pretty significant and a very harsh statement to make. It's not saying that he is unforgiven and he can no longer be forgiven, but it, what it's saying is that he doesn't belong to the family of God because his heart is not truly submissive and surrendered to Jesus. And so then after this moment, we don't hear much of Simon the sorcerer. We don't hear anything after that. But then Peter and John leave. And then we're, we shift, the story shifts back to Philip, where it says after this, that Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to go to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, where he overhears in this moment, an Ethiopian eunuch reading from the book of Isaiah and doesn't know what it means. And so Philip in this moment, comes alongside the, the, the chariot and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And, he, and the eunuch says, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. And so then... Philip jumps in the in the chariot and starts asking or starts explaining to him because in the moment he's reading the book of Isaiah, which talks about the suffering servant, Philip explains to him what it means as Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and law. The eunuch comes to faith in Christ and then he says, "How here's a body of water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? The eunuch gets baptized and it says as soon as Philip comes out of the water, the the or as soon as the eunuch comes out of the water, sorry, the Philip disappears. He is nowhere to be found. But it says the eunuch went away rejoicing. And I thought it was interesting that I'd not really necessarily picked up on before, but the idea, like notice the contrast between Simon, the sorcerer, and the eunuch. One received the truth of the gospel fully, surrendered their lives, got baptized, and went away joyfully. The other heard the heard the word of God or the gospel, responded to it, got baptized, but his heart was not fully surrendered and he was rebuked and removed from the family of God in that instance. And I just thought it was a really interesting way to, for chapter eight to end where you see Philip's ministry and the impact that God was making through him and his obedience. And then also the like the the magic trick, if if you will, probably a really bad way to say it, but Philip just disappears. The eunuch gets baptized. And it says that the Holy, like the spirit picked or, or whisked Philip away. He, he pulled him away and, it, and the eunuch didn't see him after he came out of the water, uh, which I thought was pretty incredible too. Chapter nine, we're reintroduced to Saul. At this point, he's been given authority by the high priest to go town to town to arrest and in essence, uh, usher in their coming death uh, of followers of what was called the way at that point, which is Christians as we know today. They were, they were, they were followers of the way is what they referred to. John 14, six, I believe talks about, I'm the way, the truth and life. Um, so they aligned their lives, the Christian, early Christians aligned their lives with a thing called the way, um, on the road to Damascus, as he was getting close, many of us know the story. If we've read, been in church world for very long, uh, there's a blinding light, um, where Paul or Saul, sorry, encounters, uh, Christ and Saul's like, who the, the call is Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's right. Who are you? And Jesus says, "I'm Christ. I'm Jesus, the one that you're cruci- the one that you're sa- uh, um, the one that you're accusing and arresting and killing." And in this moment, Saul has a conversion experience. He's blinded. He's told to go into Damascus and wait, where there's a, a, a man who will come and see him. All the while, we see a parallel moment where the angel of the Lord tells Ananias, who is in uh, who is in Damascus at this time. Different Ananias, obviously, than the yeah. one who He's alive, lied. this Ananias. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, so different Ananias, 
you see this wrestling match between Ananias and God saying, God, I don't think you understand, which is always funny. My paraphrase, obviously, but he's the one that was killing Christians. And God tells Ananias, go anyways. And so I just wish God in that moment was like, oh, you're totally right. My bad. I meant this I didn't realize that. Oh, you know, Ananias, that's new info to me. Dope. How did I forget? Dope. But it, but I love the humanity of that moment, right? Because how many things, times do we today wrestle with, God, did you, you really want me to do that? Are you sure? But Ananias, even in resting, he was very hesitant with do right, chooses to trust in God and goes to Saul, ends up coming to Saul, prays for Saul. It says that it looks like scales fall from Saul's eyes. Saul at this point gets baptized, which means he's confessed a belief in surrendering to Jesus and the gospel, gets baptized. He starts preaching that Christ is the Messiah. Talk about the greatest turnaround um, in probably Christian history. Maybe not, but close enough. Uh, he tries to connect with the disciples, but they were afraid of him with due right until Barnabas comes to speak uh, to his defense and then validates his experience, validates his confession of faith, validates his baptism, validates him as a true follower of the way. And so we have this incredible moment where Saul is now part of the the very same body of believers that he was looking to arrest and and bring to their death. And he has now encountered Jesus and his life is forever changed. And he says he then preaches and debates with Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenistic Jews is what they say, which is Greek-speaking Jews, who in essence want to kill him. The believers there, the disciples there catch wind of this and they ship Saul off, off to Tarsus by the believers. He's shipped off because they're trying to protect him. So Saul didn't die. And then there was this statement that says at, at the end of this passage in chapter nine, it says, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, which is, which is a significant thing because remember there was persecution. After Stephen's death, there was the scattering of the church, but then upon Saul's conversion of faith, there's now peace because who's now going to initiate and lead the charge to arrest Christians and bring them into prison for their impending death. There's no one now that's zealous enough or fervent enough to want to see this happen, which is what Saul was doing. He was very zealous. He was. A, he was. A, he even says this later on in the in the epistles as we read through him. If anybody has any reason to boast, I do. And so there's no one else to take up Paul's mission. It, it falls to the wayside. So there's peace in the church, and it was strengthened. And they were living in. And it says this in wrapping it up. It says they living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. We then shift and we see the healing of a man at this point. After there's peace, we see the healing of a man by Peter's ministry, uh, who was paralyzed for eight years that Peter calls him, says, stand up, get on your feet. He gets on his feet and is healed. And then we're introduced to a, a disciple, a female disciple named Tabitha or Dorcas, depending on your translation, how you want it to be said, who lived in Joppa, who was a very faithful servant, who was very charitable, very did a lot of great, good acts, kind acts that were reflected of the gospel, was aligned with the way. She became sick and died, and because they found out Peter was close, they called for him to come quickly. He comes quickly to Joppa, and when he gets there, he was brought to where they laid her, which says they laid her in a room. Uh, Peter sent them out of the room, the women who were weeping, sent them out of the room, shut the door, and got down on his knees and prayed, and then simply spoke to her, Tabitha, wake up, and she woke up, which is incredible to be to even consider that this actually happened. Uh, it wasn't Jesus ushering in uh, resurrection. It was Peter, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, was able to then pray and see uh, Tabitha wake up in Joppa. And then more people came to believe in the truth of Jesus. It says, Peter stayed in Joppa with Simon the Tanner 
and continue to disciple and uh, raise up and train and develop and build the church. We then get to chapter 10, where it's still focused on Peter at this point, uh, where we hear of this vision of Cornelius, who's a Gentile centurion uh, of the Roman government. Uh, he's part of the army. He's a centurion in charge of a lot of uh, things, a lot of people, a lot of army men, if you will. That's a weird way to say it. But <laughs> well, just the army men, you know, the little, Sol- green, the little green guys, you know, soldiers, some people call soldiers, them. Soldiers, thank but, you. you know. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't think of soldiers. I just thought of army men. Um, but he's a centurion. He has this vision from God and he sends for Peter. And as he's sending a, a, a handful of guys to, to find Peter, they catch one that is in Joppa. So they send our heads, a, a, a crew of guys go to Joppa. It says, then Peter has this vision of God. And one morning as he is going up on top of the house to pray, he has this vision of a sheet of sorts coming down from, from heaven with every four-footed hoofed animal on it. In other words, everything unclean that the Jewish culture would deem unclean based upon Old Testament law. All these animals on there, and and then a voice tells Peter, rise and eat. And Peter says, oh, nothing's unclean has ever touched my lips. And then the response back from God is, don't call what God has created. Anything God has deemed clean, you cannot call unclean. So anything God has created, you can't call unclean. And there's this paradigm shift in Peter's understanding of what God means. And we get this in chapter 10, verses 23, the second part, uh, all the way through 36. It says, the next day he got up. And set out with him. So at this point, he has this envision. He has this response from God. Don't call anything unclean, which I deem clean. These men show up and say, hey, you need to come to Cornelius' house. Holy Spirit says, hey, you need to go with them. And, and so he does. He goes with them and he's he's has this fresh vision. He understands he's supposed to go. And so all of a sudden you start seeing these puzzle pieces put into place. And it says this in verse 23. It says, the next day he got up and set out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went with them. The following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting him and they and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I'm a man. I, am my, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Peter, Peter said to him, you know, it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me, and this is the, this is the crux of it. This is the fulfillment of the vision that, that God gave Peter. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without objection when I was sent for. So I may ask, why are you sent for me? And so it's incredible because what Peter is saying is true. In the Jewish culture, you are not allowed to entertain, sit down, have a meal with a foreigner. Because sharing a meal, remember weeks ago we talked about this, sharing a meal is a very significant cultural thing. You don't share a meal with just anybody. You don't like it, you have to be invited. You have to be intent. Like it's, it's a significant thing. So for Peter, who's a Jew to arrive at a Gentile's house, someone who they would deem as unclean, it's not cut from the same cloth. They're not, they're not God's people. It's a very significant thing. So Peter in this moment is showing that he is understanding what God has intended from that vision. And now he's like, why do you want me to be here? And in verse 30, says, Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He is lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I immediately sent for you. It was good of you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you've been commanded by the Lord. Peter began to speak. Now, truly, I understand that God doesn't show favoritism because at this point, 
I'll just finish it real quick. It says, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of the peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And the significance of this is the prior to this moment, there was the, the belief that the Jews were God's only people, that God only spoke to the Jews, that the Holy Spirit only showed up to the Jews. And for the Gentiles to be included was somewhat of an aberration, somewhat of a, I know Jesus kind of talked to some Gentiles, but it, but we're the elect, we're the chosen, we're the ones that God has called us as his people. And and in this moment, because of this vision, because of the, it's it's a breakthrough moment for the early church and for all of humanity, because I'm sitting in a seat as a Gentile that would not be included according to Jewish law and Jewish culture um, and history there. And so we see the significant thing where Peter is responding to the, um, the, the, the obedience and the vision of God. Chapter 10 continues that we get this happening while Peter was preaching in verses 44 to 48. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even to the Gentiles. The implication here is that it was the same empowerment of the Holy Spirit that the disciples encountered at the day of Pentecost with speaking in tongues. They thought it was clearly just for Jews, but it wasn't just for Jews. It was for all the people, even as Joel would prophesy, and we've, we already kind of referred to that. Um, and it says this in verse 46, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. Peter does and continues to teach, build up and, and develop, um, the church in, uh, in this town in, in with, uh, the centurion and his family and those closest to him. We continue into chapter 11, where we see Jewish Christians were not sure what to think about the Gentile salvation and spirit empowerment. Chapter 11 details Peter walking them through the events that took place that led them to this moment. Um, and then in verse 18, the reply was, when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. This is a massive paradigm shift and it it's a pretty significant breakthrough moment for the early church. Um, at this point, we're also introduced to the church at Antioch, another result of persecution that took place where everybody had separated. Barnabas goes to Antioch and encourages them um, and and celebrates what they are doing and, and confirms that this is actually of the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, we are then go to Tarsus where we're sorry, Barnabas goes to Tarsus looking for Saul, finds Saul, brings him back to Antioch where they are there for a year to teach and preach at the church. Um, and this is also where we get a fun little fact. This is the first place that the term Christians is used, which means little Christs. Um, there's a famine that happens and we see in chapter 11 in Jerusalem specifically. Uh, they give some details about who was emperor at the time, when it played out. And it's, it just shows that the church rallies together to make sure f- to help with relief for the brothers and sisters. So they sent money and help through Barnabas and Saul at this point. Uh, and then we kind of get to the final five verses of this week's reading, uh, where I put in my notes, cliffhanger alert. <laughs> uh, we are told in chapter five, 12 of a violent attack by uh, King Herod. This is where we get the, the second martyr of the early church. Um, and we're kind of left on a cliffhanger. And this is what it says. It says, at that time, King Herod violently attacked someone, some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. We don't get any more details besides that. So this is one of the sons of thunder. This is John, the beloved disciple's brother, who is killed by the sword by King Herod. And when he saw, this is when King Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of unleavened bread. 
After the arrest, he was put in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, four, four soldiers or army men to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. In verse 5, the last verse of this week's reading says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Dun, dun, dun. And that's where it ends. So pick it up next week for a continuation of what's happening. Find out next week on this. Uh, I, I butchered it. It's okay. Shoot. It happens. What are you going to do? But that's the end of this week's reading. <sighs> but it's not the end of the podcast episode. Because nah, we got other things to hit. Yeah, let's talk about what we learned today. <laughs> so for me, the thing, like, I don't know, my number one takeaway today is the road to Emmaus. I think it gives us a really important piece into how we need to read our Bibles. And, and specifically, I was talking with someone about this the other week, but if what it says in that story is true, and that is that all of the Old Testament from the law to the prophets points to Christ. That means that everywhere in the Old Testament, every story that we're reading is somehow going to point to Christ, or at least in the overarching sense of it. And so when we read the Old Testament, I think one of the mistakes we can make is not thinking what is God saying what was God saying to those people in that time who read it first? And I think that's a really important lens to think through. Um, but I think the equally important lens is how does this point to Christ? And I think you have to do both. You have to be able to say, what was this, how was this read by the people who read the book first, by the people who this was actually written for? And then also, how can this point me to Jesus? And and what that does for me, honestly, I, I it's turned around the way I feel about the Old Testament. I love reading the Old Testament. I, I, I love it when we're in the podcast, when we get to do Old Testament books, because it kind of turns it into a treasure hunt. It turns it into trying to figure out each and every way, how is Jesus the better so-and-so? I think it was a few weeks ago, we, I talked about how I had, oh, when Jesus went, uh, when Jesus goes into the the desert to be tempted, realizing like, oh, Jesus is the better Esau, where Esau fails when he's confronted with hunger, all of a sudden Jesus succeeds. And it's moments like that, that I think are really special, where you can kind of just see each and every little bit of point, or each and every little point about how it's all pointing towards Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, my I think my, one of the things that kind of struck me this today was, uh, oh, I guess this week in reading was, um, I just said it this way, like you had to be filled with the spirit to oversee distribution of <laughs> resources in the early church. And, and it's interesting to me um, how intentional that the early disciples were to ensure the right people were leading in the right capacities in the right places. Like it's of being, and we read in, in Acts chapter four, like they were of one mind and one heart. They were in one accord is another translation. Um, and I just thought it was, it was, it was interesting to consider and reflect back on my own journey, like in leadership and pastoring and things like that, about how I've put people in position of leadership and oversight, but have neglected the, the, the confirmation of maturity maturing in Christ of maturity enough that warranted the position that they were in. And, and even how something as simple as overseeing distribution of the poor and the needy, the widow and the orphan in the early church needed and, and carried significant enough weight for the early disciples to say, pick people who are of good reputation, filled with the Holy spirit and wisdom. And, and I thought that was really challenging to consider when it comes to today, modern times, like how easy and how quick you are just to give anybody platform if we're not, if, if based upon need, not based upon experience. And so um, for whatever it is, I guess it's more of like a practical pastoral, but leader is just the idea of like, man, it's everything we do, we should carry the same weight and understanding, 
no matter what our role is to be a mature follower, growing follower of Jesus. And, and it, it correlates even to the comparison between the Ethiopian eunuch and Simon the sorcerer. And um, I even thought like that was another one that I even thought about this week too. Is like Simon the sorcerer is someone who heard the gospel, professed faith in the gospel, got baptized, and yet actually his heart was not right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that, I mean, so it kind of correlates into even this conversation. Like there is significance and in, in need to evaluate our hearts, but also evaluate the hearts of those who we're giving platform to, who we're giving, I mean, influence over our lives, whether through social media or uh, even position of church leadership or life group leadership, whatever the case is, I think who has the influence in our lives and do we, can we verify fruitfulness, not just profession? Because I think that Simon the Sorcerer professed, so did the Ethiopian eunuch, but there was fruitfulness was the difference there. And so um, I just thought it was really interesting that the disciples said, hey, make sure the men of good reputation and are filled with the spirit and wisdom uh, that were the ones that were required to do the oversee the distribution, which is, seems so simple and so minimal and as far as a task is concerned, but still very important in the early church. So. Yeah, that's a great reminder. Uh, like you said, we're we're in a bit of a backlog of questions, so we're going to power through. Like, Which is a good thing because there's some weeks we don't have any. Yeah, so we're going to power through three of them right now. All righty. I put as the title for this, what's in a name? That's our theme this week because all three <laughs> questions are about names. So uh, the first question is this. Why was Esau called Edom? Who gave him that name and where is it mentioned? It took me a while to understand that Edom was the nation of Esau's people. Uh, so this one is pretty I, – I, they're all pretty simple to answer. We don't have like exact confirmation because, there's yeah, there's not that moment where it's like, I now call you Edom. Uh, they have the same root though. So Esau and Edom both mean red. So it's like land of the red and then uh, just red all over I think is the actual – direct translation of what Esau means. Uh, so that's probably basically what happened there. And then eventually, you know, just language changes over time as well. Um, as I was reading it the other day about how uh, the name England, the way that we got that is it's uh, the land of the Angles, like from the Anglo-Saxons. So it was originally Angoland. And then eventually, like just over time, language morphs and he eventually gets a slightly different pronunciation. So I don't think there's anything crazy going on here. I think it's just that the uh, the land of Edom, it's essentially the same name as Esau. It's more just kind of referring to the land in general is kind of the idea. I don't know if you have anything you want to add in that one or not, but... Nope, sounds good. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, question two, Chronicles 1 mentioned Sayer. After further reading, I see that Sayer as a place instead of a person, but it just seems like it was randomly dropped in the middle of uh, in there in the extensive genealogy. Seriously, so extensive. Uh, <laughs> that was, I feel that's the best. Comment. I feel your pain. Uh, I kept expecting to see the names of their pet turtles listed. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, the genealogy they get really long. Uh, it is important, like when we're reading through them. Um, you have to think through why are they there? Because the, the genealogies and like the list of law, those are probably the two biggest things to slog through in the Bible as you're reading through. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, sometimes I skim, but what, but what are you going to do? I know, I How know. How dare you? Uh, but remember, like with these genealogies, it's it makes sense that this culture, the culture of the ancient Jews, is very obsessed with their lineage. It's very they're very obsessed with where they came from because they're going through these extensive periods of loss. They're going through these extensive periods of wandering. And so keeping hold of that history and remembering where it is they came from is incredibly important to them. Well, we see that even in modern times too, or in regards like family lineage and family history yeah. matter greatly. I mean, medieval times. 
um, all throughout like certain layers of history. Like there's just a value, a high value placed on your family history. Yeah. I mean, we have, it's, and I don't mean to mean that say these are exactly the same, but we have a little bit of this in the U S where for the vast majority of people here, this is kind of the land of our sojourning. If, if that makes sense, where there's not, um, the longest history that most people who live in the, unless you're a Native American, the longest history that most people who live in the U.S. have is like a few centuries, which if you go to other places in the world, there's families that like, what are you talking about? A few centuries? Like we've been here forever. Uh, and so there is almost like an American obsession sometimes with like, well, what, like what's like, what's the, where does my family come from? Like where did they emigrate from? All these different things. So yeah, it's an attachment to history. Um, sorry, all that's a roundabout way of answering. So Sayer, uh, there, and this is a, this is an easy one where, it's similar to the way Israel. Israel is both a name and it is the name of the land as well. So remember, Jacob's name is changed to Israel and then the, the, his land is called Israel as well. And so uh, sometimes you get the Esau Edom thing where the name is slightly changed, even though it's meaning the same thing. And then other times it's just straight up the name is the, the land is named after the person and you just use the name and keep moving. Uh, final question is, so Matthew is Levi, Simon is Peter, and Bartholomew also, is Bartholomew also Nathaniel? Yes. Well, that wraps it up. Just kidding. So, uh, yeah. So the, the gospels can get a little bit confusing on that as well. And that's a, a big part of that is because people would have Greek and Hebrew names. And so that's just kind of what it comes down to. So for instance, I, for, I remember for years, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought that Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul. That's not the case. Those are just both Paul's names. So Paul, he goes by his Greek name when he's traveling around because that's the one, like obviously you're going to go by your Greek name when you're traveling to a bunch of Greek city states, you're traveling to a bunch of places that predominantly speak Greek. You just you just blew some people's mind right now. I know. Well, because like we do, because you do get those dramatic ones. There's like Jacob wrestles with God and now you're Israel or Abram mm -hmm. to Abraham. Uh, in the Simon New to Peter. Yeah. Yeah. In the New Testament, you get Simon, <coughs> sorry, in the New Testament, you get Simon to Peter. Sometimes it's just they had they had two names. So like Matthew would be the Greek name, Levi would be the Hebrew name. Uh, sorry, Simon to Peter is one where God actually or Jesus actually well same thing, but Jesus actually changed it. And then Bartholomew to Nathaniel seems like it would be another situation where one of those is the Greek name, one of those is the Hebrew name. It also can get messed up because it's not just Greek and Hebrew. It can also just be nicknames that people are known by. Uh, we talked about good old Joseph, who is also called Barsabbas and Justice, right? And so you could easily just refer to like Barsabbas and never use any of the other names and it would still mean the same thing. That's not something we really have in our culture today where people have multiple names that they go by, right? Usually if you have a nickname, that's what everyone knows you by. And But I don't know, this is kind of, that's kind of the way it goes. Yeah. It's like Gandalf. You know, to the, to the hobbits, he's Gandalf, but to the elves and to the Gondorians, he's Mithrandir. To uh, the Rohirrim, he can be the Grey Pilgrim or the uh, Storm Crow. You know, to I forgot what his name is. In, I have no to idea the what dwarves, you're saying. But anyway, yeah, I know you're all super fascinated with this, listeners. But <laughs> so there you go. But yeah, so basically, all of those are correct, though. Yeah, Matthew is Levi, Simon is Peter, and then Bartholomew is also Nathaniel, and Thaddeus is Judas, um, the other Judas. So, but yes, I get the good Judas. Yeah. And I get that one. You know, if my name was Judas after Judas Iscariot did what he did, I would also go by Thaddeus. So 100%. There you go. Uh, well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources at grove.church under our media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.